Well, hello, CMYK community, and welcome, welcome, welcome to another CMYK Talk podcast. Man, we got a good one for you today. Um, as you may know, we're in the midst of this series entitled Stories. We're starting to wrap that up, so we got this week, and then we've got one more story that's going to be shared, but uh, just the power of understanding where we come from and the stories that we all hold and to understand the sacredness and significance in each other's stories and to find that in our own selves as well. So today we've got uh, the incredible Chris Glenn sharing her story. She is someone that's been a part of the community for a while. She's actually on staff with CMYK and the role that she serves, the title is executive director because she really is the one helping move so many pieces for us as a community. And um, you're going to understand really quickly the the story that's here and how uh, beautiful of a thing and honored we are to have her as a part of this community helping lead and serve uh, this thing known as CMYK. So, man, listen to this uh, whole interview because there's so much good stuff and uh, she's someone that's had a lot of life um, throughout the few years that she's been around. Also, want to mention mention that make sure I want to mention that you know I want to make sure that you know that we've got a CMYK online magazine that's going to be releasing this week. So some of you know that uh, we have this magazine tool to try and share the stories of the community and keep everybody in the know for what's going on, what we're giving money to, these kinds of things. Just a way for us to all stay connected. So that online magazine is going out this week, and the way that we send it out is through email. And the way that you get uh, signed up for that is simply go to our website, cmykcommunity.com, and just give us your email address and your name, and you'll have it in your inbox. It'll be yours, and they'll always come and so to your inbox, so you'll always be in the know for what's happening. And that's only monthly, uh, maybe even less than that. We're still kind of playing around with it, so we promise you we're not going to inundate your inbox with a whole bunch of junk. We are simply just going to send you stuff uh, of what's going on in regular issues of the magazine. So we're going to jump in with Chris Glenn. I do need to mention before we get into it, my son Anders, who is three and a half years old, was a part of this conversation, and it was not supposed to be that way. <laughs> You're going to find out why really quickly, or if you've been around three-year-olds, you know this. Uh, Anders' child care fell through, so it was this last minute, hey, we're going to have him in the room and just trying to you know, get him through this conversation as well. So there's a couple different points when you'll hear Anders kind of speak up and I had this stop and kind of address what was going on with him. And then we come back to Chris. So I felt bad for Chris. I'm sorry, but that's, that's what happened. She was such a trooper throughout this whole thing. So you're going to hear some edit points throughout this conversation and tried to make it as smooth as possible, but you'll get it. So without further ado, Chris, what? Well, Miss Miss Chris Glenn, thanks for being here uh, today. Uh, so excited to have you uh, just be a part of this conversation. So, uh, what's been fun for me with this series is to be able to kind of have conversations with people that not everybody in the community really knows or has interacted with. But you know, I know them and have interacted with them. Uh, this is a fun one though because you're someone that is you know, deep in the weeds of everything that is CMYK, uh, in the role that you're playing and just the, the life and energy that you bring into this thing. So, um, I'm excited and honored that you would do this this morning. Thanks. Oh, thank you. It's <laughs> good to be here, but it's kind of scary. So that's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, traverse this together. So, uh, as you know, the question that we have, uh, in this story series, we just start out with is, um, where have you been? What leads you to this this place, and what's your story so far? What are the things that come to your mind right now? Yeah, so um, one of the things that really matters to me is that there is kind of this overriding beliefs that have really impacted my life, that I've lived my my life based upon them. And so I guess probably as I tell this story, I want to point those out because they really controlled a lot of my decisions. And I, it wasn't a conscious thing. Um, but now I, I see it. And so one of the ones There's is... There's a core belief system structure roots that go deep for who you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And I'm not saying they're correct. Yep. But... <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. 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 So one of them is that love is not given. It has to be earned. 
Okay. So it's not an assumed thing. You have to be good enough to be loved. Um, and I think that starts with my parents, where I was born in Billings. Um, we lived in Bozeman and Helena as well. My dad was in college at MSU in Bozeman. Um, and then we moved back to Billings when I was um, between fifth and sixth grade. And then we, I stayed here until I left in my 20s. But um, my parents, they weren't really very demonstrative with love. Um, they didn't hug and kiss or say, I love you or things like that. It just wasn't in our family. Um, and I think I saw other things, television or movies or books and, and people didn't act that way. And I thought, well, my parents don't love me. So I tried really hard to be a good enough daughter. You know, mm. I, I didn't break the rules. I tried to be good in school. I was respectful. I mean, all these things I tried really, really hard. And um, that kind of played out through my entire life. And uh, we moved a lot. My dad liked to flip houses back before it became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and He was cool before it was cool. Yeah, he was always, he was <laughs> kind of a hipster. leader. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, that, but that meant I didn't really get to make connections with other people either or to see other people model yeah. what love is like. Huh. So I think... You know, before by the time I graduated from high school, we'd lived in like 13 different houses, and I'd gone to eight schools in three towns, and um, it was just, you know, we had a middle-class life. I didn't think there was anything unusual about it. Mm-hmm. I thought we were pretty normal. I had a house, and uh, we had food, and I had clothes, and not fancy clothes, but I didn't care. I wasn't into clothes, and um, but I was still trying to earn that love, and I think... Part of it as well is my dad was bipolar, and this was in the 60s and the 70s, and so mental illness wasn't really understood, or at least it wasn't an issue back then. They didn't really have a lot of medication to treat it. Um, I think he finally did start getting medication when I was in high school, but it was not very effective. And people who have bipolar a lot of times don't like medication because it kind of dulls their their view on world, uh, view on the world. Um, and so he ended up using, um, my sister told me he uses alcohol to kind of control that. So he became an alcoholic and my mom really withdrew, I think a lot from things. So she just kind of disappeared, it seems like. So it was a hard and a kind of very chaotic, um, time. Um, so as soon, almost as soon as I got out of high school, I went to college in Bozeman um, for a year, and then I came back here, and I got married to a, a local guy. And um, I kind of joke that he raised me, and that sounds kind of weird, but he was a stable personality, and he had a stable life, and mm-hmm. he paid his bills on time, and he went to work, he owned a business, and he was 10 years older than me. Um, so he's, it was kind of he had a lot more experience in things. And so I think it really gave me a place to mature and become more of who I really was because I was always kind of in the defense mode at home. And, um, and and you had a a cleaner, clearer picture of what adulthood looked like. Yeah. Um, compared to, you know, the reflection your parents were bringing of what that looked like. Yeah. There's probably a part of you was like, that's not it. But that's not what I want. Yeah. So here's a relate. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And and there's this theme through my life has been a, a desire to move from chaos to order, mm-hmm. or chaos to stability. And yeah. I think that was a that was the first kind of instance of that. And um, so I, I went to college, and here's another example of that. Um, when I first went to college, my friends, I was one of the geeky nerdy kids, and my friends were going to do electrical engineering. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that along with you. And, um, <laughs> you know, I got to MSU, and, and we're supposed to be signing up for the classes, and I really didn't want to do it. And I just switched to architecture, just on the spur of the moment. My friends are all expecting to show me up and show up in class, and I just never came, because yeah. I switched my major. Yeah. Um, and it was a draw towards creativity and just something and to be different and become try and become who I really was rather than who I people expected me to be. Mm-hmm. And trying to earn something from somebody, you're taking a step. Like you talked about, you're taking a step to just be you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so then I ended up, after that first year, I came back to Billings and got married um, and so was going to Eastern instead, which e- Eastern Montana College, predecessor to MSUB, for mm-hmm. those who don't know it. Um, 
And they didn't have architecture, so I, I started studying art, and I thought, well, I'll be an art teacher. And um, I was in an art class with Ben Steele, was my drawing instructor, hmm. and we were talking about um, drawing. I was trying to draw a picture of my cat, and he was talking about the difficulty of making any kind of meaningful art with a pet because he said it's just, you know, it's almost... I won't, don't want to say his words because I can't remember them, but it, my interpretation is kind of too cutesy. It's too um, emotional. It's not, it's not really a good um, subject for a drawing. And that got me started thinking. And I thought, gosh, you know, art is really subjective. And there's, it's really hard to say this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. And that started feeling very chaotic to me. And I changed my major. <laughs> From art mm -hmm. to math. Yep. So, <laughs> so you're on major number four now, moving uh, into this next two, one. Yeah, arch architecture. Well, engineering. Art, yeah, engineering, engineering, which I never even started. Yeah. Art, and now, yep. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's what I ended up graduating with, was a degree in mathematics. But the key there is that, you know, you go from a very fluid environment to a very black and white, mm -hmm. you know, in mathematics. Two ends of the spectrum, yeah. Yeah, it's very clear, the, the right answer. Um and so I graduated and I was 25, so it took a while because I was also working um, part-time and I had to go to school part-time. But um, Skip and I were at the fair and they had one of those military exhibits and I just happened to mention, while well, we were probably climbing on a tank or something. I said, you know, I always wanted to join the military. And he's like, well, why don't you? And I'm like, well, we're married. You have a business. You know, I can't just yeah. join the military. And he's like, no, I like. I was in the Army. I loved it. And so two years later, I'm an Air Force officer <laughs> Wow! in New Mexico working for Space Command. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really a turning point. By Space Command, you mean Area 51? Just wink. No. That's, just wink. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. Okay, wink. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Great. Yeah. But another dramatic change it and shift. It was a dramatic shift, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, to be honest, I think if I hadn't done that, I'd probably still be living in Billings. I'd probably still be married to Skip. Um, I think that's probably what would be happening. But instead, I went that way. And he couldn't find a job he liked down there, so he ended up staying back here in Montana. Hmm. And um, there I was exposed to all these young people, college graduates, all kinds of interests from all over America. And I really, I had never really been exposed to that because when I was going to Eastern, I was working. I was one of those non-traditional students. I just went to my classes and went home. Um, our social group here was focused on cars and hot rods and car shows and things like that, which I enjoyed and I liked. Um, but it really wasn't what I personally was drawn to. That was more Skip's world. Mm -hmm. And so after being down there a while, I just, and he and I really didn't have any connection. We didn't talk much. I just said, I want to get a divorce. And mm. I didn't have a faith background, so I had no moral objection to it. It was just kind of like, well, you know, practical. We don't see each other. We don't talk really. And, and he... He went along with it. Sorry. If you can't tell, Andrews is in the room. So <laughs> what's up, buddy? Okay. Um, Sorry. So you're in this state of this relationship isn't, quote, unquote, working because of the distance, and there's no faith background to really kind of tie you to that. Not that would be the only thing, but yeah. you didn't have the traditional Christian guilt of going down that right. path. Right. So I, you just yeah. made that call. Just a little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, looking back on it, I think you know, it was really, he agreed to it because he cared about me. And he mm -hmm. said, well, if that's what she wants, then okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I, it was pretty self-centered request of mine um, and naive. I just really mm -hmm. didn't know much about the world. I hadn't hardly done anything. So, you know, I, I don't, it's, kind of, it's something that bothers me. But, mm -hmm. And from that, I guess I'm really, it, it pleases me that we're still friends and yeah. So, yeah, we, we still see each other and hang out together. He watches our dog when we're gone. And yeah. Anyway. I got to meet him a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. We talked about how great you are, uh. which is <laughs> pretty pretty great to have a conversation like that with an ex-husband. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. That's yeah. why I think I'd still be married <clears throat> if I hadn't gone that mm -hmm. different direction. Um, but so um, stayed in the Air Force. And, you know, when I was talking about searching for love and 
a place to be. I didn't really feel like I had a place with my family. And so what I did is I would make my workplace my family and I would really connect with them. And that became my identity. And so at that place in New Mexico, I did that. And then I moved to Colorado Springs, the same kind of thing there. Um, And then the Air Force was drawing down. And so I got out and I was, I had been leading a project for Lockheed Martin with some people from Lockheed Martin. And I was really impressed with them and their work ethic and their knowledge and their commitment to the job. And I just, I'm like, I want to work with them. So I got a job with Lockheed Martin doing software engineering um, on a, a satellite program in Colorado Springs, still with the military. And then I had also gotten married again um, to Steve, and that was much more difficult. Um, we were having difficulty in our relationship, and so I thought, well, you know what? He he wanted to move to Europe. We had talked about it, and a job came up for me in England, and I thought, well, maybe that would be good. Um, it would put us together in an unfamiliar place, and we'd have to kind of draw together, and maybe it would bring us closer. And it was really hard because I was leaving my support system, you know, my job and mm-hmm. all that. Um but I'm like, no, he's more important. So we went to England. And um, probably any marriage counselor would tell you that's a bad thing to do, to put yourself into a difficult place. Um, and it, it didn't work. So when we were there, I realized we, we were having conflict. Um, and what I my feeling is that I really loved him, and there were so many qualities that I loved. He was very playful, and I never played as a kid. And he was creative. He was a musician. Um, he was all these amazing things that I loved. But he was also really volatile and unpredictable. And when he was hurt or angry, he'd lash out. And a lot of times it was me at me. And I just couldn't predict when it was going to happen. And mm-hmm. it, it was really it was really hard. And so with one hand, I'm like, no, stay. I want to be married. With the other hand, I'm like, but, but you can't live in the same house with me. You can't yeah. be close to me. And I didn't understand it, and I couldn't figure it out. And um, we worked, we went through counseling and things like that. And um, eventually, he's just said, "Look, if you if we can't live together, I don't. We can't be married. You decide. We either live together in the same house, or we get divorced. You decide and decide now." And hmm. I just, I couldn't do it. I was terrified, and I didn't know why. I just couldn't do it. And so we got divorced. And by then he had already moved back to America and we were trying to do this remotely and it was, it was really hard. Um, and I mean, it did help. I had started going to a church there. That's one of the real gifts I had through being married to Steve is he taught me that he didn't really teach me. He actually, he believed in God. He was a long multi-generation Baptist and, um, watching him believe I started believing and Mm -hmm. it's just it was that was one of the, that was probably the greatest gift I got from yeah. that marriage. But so um, I had started going to a church in England, and the pastor there was trying, was helping me and advising me through the divorce. And in the end, after all, he kind of said, "It's you know, it's up to you. I would support you either way." Um, but he said, "I think if you go back to Mon- uh, to America, which is what Steve wanted me, he's like, it's kind of like throwing you to the wolves." And I just felt, you know, I, that. I feel like that gave me the permission because by then I did have that um, moral objection to divorce. I really didn't want to divorce, but mm-hmm. it was like I it was it felt to me like um, I divorce or die, and but I couldn't explain it. But yeah. So um, at that point, I started working with the counselors. Well, at the end of our marriage, I was trying to figure what in the world is happening, and I was focusing on my dad because he was very volatile. And, you know, we'd be sitting at dinner and something would, he wouldn't like something and he'd grab the dinner table and dump it over or hmm. um, he'd be driving in the car and he and mom would get in a fight and they, he'd just run into something. And it was, it was just, it was just scary. And, um, but with, but I never could figure it out in all the, the kind of therapy sessions. I couldn't figure out how, what the connection was. And that was because I was like my dad's right hand man and, I was the oldest, and so I, I did all the things maybe a son would do. You know, I've done sheetrocking, I've mixed concrete, I've rebuilt his motorcycle engine, I've done all these boy things, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. Um, and I was really good at monitoring his moods because I was with him all the time, and I could see him. Um, I could see him start to escalate in mood, and so I'd start trying to calm him and, and stuff like that. But 
with Steve, I couldn't see it it coming, and it just came out of the blue, and mm-hmm. it was terrifying. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Um. Then he was gone, but then a few people at my work started doing things like that, and I'd send an email, and the lady next to me, she'd just go off the deep end. I'm like, what in the heck? Yeah. But it was still really frightening. And so I started withdrawing and I felt like my workplace wasn't safe anymore either. It wasn't just my personal life. It was also work. And it, it was it was a really hard time. And um, then this one time, uh, this movie was on the, on the television, The Incredibles. <laughs> yeah, the Pixar film? Yeah. <laughs> so good. And I don't know it well. I just thought, I just watched oh, I it do. for a minute. I've seen it way too many times. Okay. I have a three-year-old. Okay. Yeah. And um, so I was watching it, and, and for people who don't know it, it's like, it's an animated film, and it's about these people who are superheroes, but yeah. they look like normal people, and they have superpowers, and and then they fight the villains. They fight the villains who um also have superpowers, but also look like regular people. This is my memory yep. of it, right? Yeah. Okay. And I'm like, I don't want to watch this movie. <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> but it was cute. But anyway, I went to bed, and... I had a nightmare, and in my nightmare, it was, um, it was, uh, I was a player in a game. I was on a gigantic um, game, like a chessboard, something mm-hmm. like that, and with live people. And I was one of the people. Yeah. And I knew there were other players, and my sister was the only one I could see though, and she was also on there, and she was like on a diagonal from me, and um, the game person who was running the game, I called them the judge for some reason. Um, they would be giving uh, the people in the game tasks, and you had to complete the task, or um, and get a reward of some sort. Or if you failed, it was a consequence. Um, mm. And so, I got a task where I had to pick up this rope and do run it through my hands. I mean, it sounds really simple, mm-hmm. but the problem is, it was like that rope that's in the back corner of a really old, dirty garage, and so it's covered in dead spiders mm-hmm. and spider webs and bug bodies and all this stuff. And I had a really serious phobia of spiders. Hmm. Serious phobia. And my sister saw this and she's like starts talking to the judge saying, no, no, she can't do this one. She's afraid of spiders. You can't. No, no, you can't. Yeah. And I'm like, no, shh, don't, don't talk. Don't say anything because I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I was more afraid of the consequence than I was afraid of the, the rope and the spiders. Yeah. yeah. And, um. But she kept talking, and and then all of a sudden, out of the out of the sky, out of the blue, this lightning bolt came and just obliterated her, and she was just gone, and no sister. And I'm like, oh. and I woke up at that moment, just mm. terrified. And I realized it's like, oh my gosh, the judge is my mom. And that combined with the movie, I realized what I had thought all my life is that people were really like superheroes. And that they had hidden superpowers. And if I displeased them, they could obliterate me, you know, smite me with their lightning Mm. bolt. And so I had always kept people at a distance. I had always been trying to please them, especially until I knew they had good self-control. Because then I knew they'd have to be really angry at me. And I knew I wouldn't make them really angry. But if they had poor self-control, they were really dangerous. They were lethal. And that was why I couldn't live with my husband is because he, I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah. And my work colleagues, I thought they were going to kill me because they had that really poor self-control. And, you know, once I was able to bring that to the surface and go, oh, that's what I'm thinking. Well, that's really stupid. Um, hmm. And it's totally not true Yeah. that I could then, okay, that's, I don't have to live that way. I don't have to be that afraid. Um, so that was kind of really a turning point. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. It, it, and it sounds crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's all of our story on some level. I think that there's these internal things that are happening and we have zero words or images or language for it. And then we have a dream or we have a conversation or we watch, we feel something. All of a sudden, there's like, it becomes this concrete thing that we can talk about. And it feels crazy to talk about it. Yeah. But I think for me, and I'm not, no, you know, psychologist or anything like that, but for me, it makes sense that it would feel crazy because... It took us so long to to find the right words to to get. like. If it were that easy to just be like, to just come out and say it, you would have done it years and years ago. But it's this really complex yeah. thing that it needed this really complex out there picture and image and yeah yeah. I, I mean, it, I'm just saying it makes sense because I've had those kinds of moments as well. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, and and 
I, I've been afraid of people. So what it meant is I've been afraid of people my yeah. entire life. Yeah. And um, that still, even though I know that's not true, that kind of still goes on a bit. Um, so my job. Um, You've been afraid of people and simultaneously working to earn love mm-hmm. from people closest to you. Yeah. Which is a really hard place like those two things don't go well together. No. I'm afraid of you, but I also have to really please you to earn love from you. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's like you're forced to be in into into connection with them. Um and on behalf of my parents, I want to say I did finally realize that they loved me. Mm-hmm. Um and it was through counseling. I was looking back and I was trying to figure out what why would did I not love me? Why? I just don't understand. And I was looking at old photos trying to get a clue and, and I'm looking and I'm thinking and I'm going, gosh, you know, I was, I was good in school and I was respectful and I followed the rules and, and all these things. And it just suddenly hit me out of the blue. It's like, I was a good kid. I really was. And, and it went, it's not me. It's them. They just didn't know how to do it. They loved me, but they didn't know how to yeah. show it. And it wasn't me. And it, wow. it's the strangest yeah. thing in that, it's like that part of my brain stopped running when I made that realization because I feel like a lot of my brain had been dedicated to this lifelong problem of what did I do wrong? What do I need to change? What do I need to fix? How do I get this working? And mm-hmm. it was just constant. Like, you know when your computer's running and it's like there's a lot of hard drive mm-hmm. access is going on and you know something's going on, and yep. but you don't know what it is. And, and it's just running and running and running and running. Yeah. It's like my brain, part of my brain was doing that. And when I made that realization, it's not me, it just stopped. And there was hmm. this silence in my head. And I'm just like, I didn't even know that was running. And wow. it was it was crazy. Um, so big, a yeah. lot of healing. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. It was quite exciting. Um, yeah. So you're over, uh, still over in England. Uh, in England. And coming through with these breakthroughs, faith is now a part of your life, and um, so what were you doing over there? I I started off in operations. We were a, a satellite communications base. Yeah. Uh, it was a military base, and I was doing software and then management and then started doing project management and eventually got into this thing called Lean Six Sigma, which is a process improvement, mm-hmm. and... Um, with all of those things, it, all of things are, were kind of bringing order out of chaos, mm-hmm. and particularly the one at the end where you come in and the the task of Lean Six Sigma is to fight a problem and try and solve a problem so, so you can take an unpredictable process that you get unpredictable results um, and make it predictable and the quality that you want at the least um, cost, at least yeah. cost and resources. Wow. Um, so I, I loved it, and I love my friends. I love the people I work with. Um, I loved the mission. Uh, even though I think a lot of people worry that the military isn't working towards peace, but I really felt like we were contributing directly to the peace of the world. And yeah. so it was a wonderful thing. Uh, but then um, I was on a subcontract and that subcontract got it, got canceled. And so I had the choice of either I could switch over to the prime and keep doing what I was doing, which was really tempting, but I had to switch companies, which meant I would lose, it would really impact my retirement with mm-hmm. Lockheed. So you're at this place, you stay with the same company and keep the benefits and retirement that you've been building up, or do you switch over to keep doing what you love, but lose a lot of that stuff in transfership? Yeah. 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 And, um... So I was married again by this time okay. to Paul, who you know, and Paul is my current husband. It's hard being and, married And really times. good guy. Yeah, he's a really good guy. And you know, one of the things that made it possible for me to be married to him is he has really good self-control. Hmm. And so he's safe for me when he gets angry, and he, we all do, Yeah. Um, but it, he can manage to control that. So, But um, yeah, so I, I was married again, and he wanted to come back to America. Uh, by this point, he'd been in England for like 30 years. I'd been there like 20 years. And um, he wanted to watch baseball in the daytime. He's from Boston. He's a big Red Sox fan. Um, and I'm kind of exaggerating. That wasn't the only reason, but it's the funniest <laughs> one. Um, so I just like, well, okay, well, I'll do the early retirement. So if I, so if I left the job, I could take a, um, a layoff in early retirement and mm-hmm. kind of do second career kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
fine, I'll leave my job um, and go back to America. And it was really hard because I was leaving, like it was like my identity. Any mm-hmm. time you leave a job like that or you're really yeah. invested in it, that's who I was. I'd been working with peop- those people for 20 years. Um, I knew where all the bodies were buried. I knew how all the systems worked. I knew where the data flow was. I mean, it was all just, it was just my world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to leave that and go back to America. And we decided to come to Billings because we had a house here. Um, and, but I, you know, my thing of moving from chaos to order, mm-hmm. well, this is the reverse. Yeah. I was going from a very ordered place back into a place of chaos because my family was here. And I mean, part of moving to England, I know there was some element of putting geographical distance between us because I just, I couldn't really seem to have much of an impact on their lives. And it was just continued chaos. And I just, I just need to be separate from it. And so, but Paul wanted to come back here. And with dogs, it's easier if you have a place to land instead of trying to figure, well, what town should we move to in all of America? Yeah. And, um, so kind of the faith part really keyed in there in that I told God, I remember sitting in this churchyard in our village and it was a spring day and I'm like, God, I just don't want to go. I mean, it's terrifying. That is the last place that I want to go. But if, if I feel like you're sending me, then, you know, I can do it. I'll do it for you. I can't do it for me, but I'll do it for you. And, you know, it's like the only way I could bring myself to come yeah. back to Billings. And so we came back um, and it's been... It's really, it's been really, 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 really hard. So married to Paul, coming back to the States, and um, Billings is the place. You're doing the opposite of what you've desired to do for the majority of your life, and that is you are moving order in your life in England to chaos by coming back here to family. Yes. And there's a lot of questions and a lot of stuff that you knew probably existed, but the distance allowed you to kind of truly have that distance from those things, whether it was your internal reality or the external relationship with family, you had that distance and now that's gone because you're back. Yeah. So I had physical distance. Um, but you know, through my counseling, I had realized my parents really did love me and I kind of had reconnected with my mom and I became her guardian. And so I was here four times a year, Mm -hmm. um, to check on her. And, and through that, I kind of reconnected with my family as well. And so, because we had a lot of material resources, we were like a source of, of help. And so I started trying to help them remotely. You and Paul. Me and Paul, place, yeah. yeah. Um, and even before Paul and I got married, I had started to go, get back into that mode. And then I started working with my counselors of boundaries and trying to recognize where it's right to say no and where it's wrong to say no mm-hmm. and, and what to do. And, and, and so I was still struggling a lot with that. And then, so coming back here where I'm in physical close proximity where they could just come knock on my door and ask for things, it was just really terrifying. Um, even I do love them. I really do. And I want to help them. Um, but just all the help I'd given over the years really didn't make a difference. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So we're back in Billings um, in the middle of a house remodel that just we needed to, that the house needed. And um, it was really, really tough. Um, it, it got so bad. I realized through all the conflict, um, it was in the winter time and I had walked outside. I picked up the dog's water bowl and I walked outside and I dumped the water bowl over my head Hmm. out in the winter. And at that moment I went, okay, this is really, really bad. And it's, it's kind of like the precursor to self-harm. And I knew that some, that, I'm about to break. And so I went and Paul and I found an addiction counselor because that was the problem with my family was there was addiction going on and I just didn't know how to deal with it. And I wanted someone who knew addiction really well because I wanted them to understand the problems of, of these family members that, um, so that I would do the best thing for them because I, I did care about them, but I also had to care about me Mm -hmm. and Paul and, so from that, I really it really, really helped. But that first year, year and a half was really, it was absolute hell. Um, but I managed through help from them and from help from Paul to get these boundaries in place. And it's way better. Hmm. It's totally better now. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's totally light and day. Yeah. So that's... Better as in just where you are personally 
and better with the boundaries you have with the relationship, things aren't necessarily night and day better for your family, or are they? Um, I think they're better. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it was, I was really just perpetuating Hmm. or helping perpetuate. I wasn't the whole thing, but you know, you've heard talk of enabling and I'm, Mm -hmm. I definitely was enabling. Um, but I didn't have the knowledge to know here's where I stop. Here's where I go. And I needed that professional addiction counselor insight to say, no, you have to not do this. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. And that is something that I learned um, in, in trying to figure out help with this um, because there's mental illness going on as well and addiction is mental illness. And, you know, so, th- so I, I went to a NAMI class, family to family, which really helped me to understand the mental illness aspects of it. Um, but sometimes it, it can be really helpful to get an addiction counselor because they can see and objectively of the situation and, you know, you're tied up with your emotions in... Um, I guess I would recommend that for anybody who's struggling with that, that they get a counselor and almost, Mm -hmm. I don't do anything unless the counselor says, yep, that's a good idea for that person. So, yeah. So I think my family's better because I stopped enabling them and they... Which is what you wanted all along is for them to be better. Yeah. Yeah. But I, this was another one of those beliefs that I had thought is that if I don't help them, they're going to die because they can't do it. And that's really wrong in that, you know, they're all... beautiful, creative, intelligent people. And they are living a lie as well, thinking, well, Chris has to fix it. You know, I can't do it. But I started saying, no, you can do it. You can do it. You can do this. Yeah. Then, um, and putting in the structures as well and preventing them, me being the rescuer, which wasn't helping them and it wasn't helping me. It really made a difference. And so life is still hard for them. Life mm-hmm. is, you know, and we, but we have good relationships. And... Um, I'm trying, doing my best to encourage them and support them. And, and it's, yeah, it makes me, I'm happier. It's it's way better. It's so good. And I couldn't have done it unless I came back here. So it's kind of like, God's like, well, you know, you got to go through this. Yeah. And so I'm glad it's behind me. That's so, I mean, it's just a, uh, just a really beautiful story because, because you're in a better place ultimately. You've grown and matured and, and, and are in a better place. And then for your family to be in that. And they to are be experiencing too. that right now is man, that's good. That's yeah. a great. It is. That's it's a one great of those, story. It's one of those. What are you it. celebrating? It's like yeah. I love it. So, um, so here you are, mm-hmm. Billings, Montana. Um, what are the things um, that you're wrestling with these days currently? What's what's heavy on your heart and life? I'm. I still have that fear of unpredictable behavior, hmm. um, especially when it's directed at me, and it's kind of. Everybody uses this word PTSD, but it just feels like um, sometimes my family, even though they love me and I love them, they get angry and it just comes out at me sometimes. And so I'm still always on alert. I feel like as long as people who are that way around me, I'm I'm still, my defenses are up. So that's really hard. Um and the thing is, I've worked all for, for like 15 years through counseling and all that stuff to try and cut off the negative attachments that I have, the negative connections, which is based on all those mis- those wrong beliefs. Yeah. Um, and I think I've done a lot of that, but now I'm like kind of detached, floating in space. It's like I don't have any negative or I have very little negative, but I don't have the positive connections and um, I just don't know how to get there. I don't know if I will get there. Um, so it's kind of an isolating experience. Because you're outside of outside of the career, job, work family that you had for years. Mm-hmm. You're creating boundaries with with some of the family and, and more negative influences or relationships in your life. And so now you're in this place of like, great. <laughs> now now, yeah, who? now, now what? what? Yeah. Now what? Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. So how are you how are you wrestling through that? What does that look like? You just hitting up the bars regularly and <laughs> trying to trying to chat it up. Um, you know, I, I it's I don't really know. Okay. I think the first thing is becoming aware of it. Yep. So now I become aware of yep. that. That's what I'm feeling. That, um, and I connect with a lot of people just kind of on a more a serving perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I like people and I like helping people. And so I meet up with people regularly and, but 
a lot of times it's it's not a I don't feel like it's it's a it's not we're in a relationship where I really um giving and taking in equal amounts and that's what I'm really looking for and I think you know there I had one young man who was a friend of my nephew and I really connected with him and he's the one that died Brad and um it's just looking uh, trying to find that mutually supportive kind of relationships and I don't know how to do it. So I'm just trying to make a lot of friends and mm-hmm. and just see what happens and yeah. try and be open to it. The CMYK principles, you know, the present, honest, open, and love, yeah. that really helps me when I'm stuck in the moment. I'm just trying to live that and I'm trusting that to play out and to mm-hmm. bring fruit into yeah. my life. And so I guess that's probably my biggest strategy is to just do those things and not not try and force anything yeah yeah i think that's good wow so uh you'd mentioned your family celebrating what's what other any other things come to your mind for what you're celebrating um yeah uh i felt like i haven't had a place for a long time real ever really and for another project i started looking at montana history and seeing how Montana just grew as a state. And, you know, it's really actually pretty sad. It's kind of like this history of exploitation of what's here, of Mm. the natural resources especially. It's just continually since the mid-1800s. But anyway, um, I have uh, a long... My family has been in Montana a long time, so my great, great, great grandfather, something like that. He was a fur trader and he was here in the 1850s. Um, and he married a Crow woman. Um, so we have a link to the native, um, to the Crow tribe and realizing through studying the history and realizing that that's really not a common thing for a white person to have like five generation, be a five, fifth generation Montanan. And it, it gives me a sense of place and, and it really, it's soothing to me. Um, even though I miss England and I love England and all that, I just, it's like, this is my place. And I've never had that before. And, um, and then I, I was always trying to figure out the leap across the pond because I had heard that this man, his Abe Farwell was his name, um, that he had come from Scotland and because I was living close to Scotland, I thought, well, I'd love to meet family. But I never could make that, figure out how that yeah. happened. And I think just last week I was looking at it again. And I found the, I think I, I found the, the move of the first Farwell, because there's a whole bunch of Farwells in, in New England. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was Henry Farwell and his wife, Olive Welby, came in 1635 to, and they went to um, Concord, Massachusetts, hmm. from England. And... And I'm like, seriously, 1635, hmm. um, which is a really long time. It's like the whole history of America. And so that kind of expanded a bit to feeling like America is my place too. Because hmm. I didn't really feel that. When you live overseas for very long, you lose your sense of place and you lose kind of that connection with your nation. Yeah. And I'm pretty critical of America a lot of times. Um, and I have a different perspective on them from living overseas and... Um, it, it just kind of, it's, it's a happy thing to me to feel like I have a place and I didn't really have it before. So yeah, that's That's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And as someone that's been, you know, born and raised in Billings and traveled, but never lived, uh, elsewhere. I mean, uh, yeah, Billings is my home and place, but to go somewhere for many years and yeah, to have, and to, I mean, to think about that question that you and Paul were asking of, Okay, we could go anywhere. Where do we want to go? You know, mm-hmm. and then to have landed in Montana, and then to be able to say about this place, "This is, this is home." Um, that's huge. Yeah, that's yeah, it 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 really is. So, and I'm celebrating spring. I yes. like being outside, and it just yeah. I love that it's it's warm. So it's the best. So. Yeah. Well, uh, last question. Uh, you know what's coming? What can we as the CMYK community be doing for you? As someone that does more for the CMYK community than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I do get paid. <laughs> well, but still, yeah, it's ridiculous the amount of, 
uh, life you bring to this place. Anyways, uh, uh, so what can we be doing for you? Well, you know, listening to my story, I don't know if, if it's c- very clear, but, you know, that connection and that loss of connection that, that I never made with my parents mm-hmm. and not feeling loved and um, not feeling safe, that has affected my entire life. Um, and to be honest, I mean, it feels like I have wasted my life. That's one of you wrestle, things you're wrestling with. That's kind of yeah. one of the things. It feels like I've just have wasted my life on on lies. And um, I don't want anybody to go through that. And what Jenny Barkak is teaching with the conscious discipline curriculum mm-hmm. with the kids, she is directly teaching parents how to connect with their kids and how to give them emotional resilience and how to survive these things. And so I would love people to engage with that and to yeah. really learn from that and seek it out, not just kind of the little tidbits that you hear, but seek it out because she has so much to offer and it's such an incredible um, resource that that is one of probably my base, biggest ask yeah. from the community. Um, just to understand that resource and not take take it uh, for granted. So, and and if you're listening to this on our, at our Sunday gatherings, we have Jenny Barkak as our kids leader, and she's just brilliant in understanding not just how to interact with kids, but what's actually happening emotionally, mentally, with you know physiologically with the place of a child and how to best interact and help them grow up and to be. Yeah. Healthy contributing individuals in the world. Yeah. Exactly. And her her focus is I mean, it is on the children, but she is more focused on the parents hmm. because she wants to teach them because it's yep. the parents and that's the thing. Yeah, the we're the ones that actually have discipline the thing. Yeah. yeah. And and I wanna say we were at one of those kids meeting, the CMYK kids meetings at my house and you were there with mm-hmm. Jenny and Andrews was there. And um and Andrews, you know, he's he's uh um He's just an active little guy, and he's mm-hmm. he has a big personality, and he's always doing these things. And And Jenny greeted him, and they were both sitting across the table from me. And she took his face in her hands, and she just looked at him and smiled. And, and she, I don't remember what she said, but you could just see Anders. He just, like, melted. He yep. just relaxed physically. Yeah. And it was that – that is the power of connection. Yeah. That it's, hmm. And it, it just – even thinking of it makes me want to cry because it's amazing. And that is what she's teaching. Yeah. And that is what every parent hopefully can bring or to just their an adult. And to, yeah. to yeah, and to the, your friends as well. It's the yeah. it's the love part of present, honest, open love. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for your time. I apologize again for Jenny should have been at this this uh interview apparently because Jenny would have had Anders fully wrapped up and <laughs> Yeah, everybody would have had a better time. So that, it's it's not about the behavior; it's about yeah. the connection. Yep. Yeah. So he's fine. He's only three. He's I just, know. He's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with all of that. So thanks, Chris. Yeah. Well, there it is. <clears throat> Someone who obviously has so much life and wisdom and beauty to um, their continual creation and work in this world and. Over the last couple days since uh, interviewing Chris, thinking about trying to how to kind of wrap up and encapsulate so much of what she talked about and to kind of give you some things to process as I'm sure there's probably a lot. Um, The thing for me that kind of comes to my mind is this text that's found in the New Testament of scriptures. It's actually at the very beginning of this thing known as the church, where, you know, these communities of people are trying to figure out what's this way of Christ supposed to look like? How are we supposed to go about this? And the writer credited for the book of Colossians is actually this letter to one of these churches. His name is Paul, and he says this in Colossians chapter 3 to this community about this new life. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I find this really fascinating language for these first followers of Christ to talk about and understand there's an old self. In other words, there's a way that we've grown up believing and thinking about the world and ourselves in the interaction between those two things, or a way that we've found uh, to treat ourselves and to treat and interact with those 
around us. It's an old way. And to hear Chris's story, and there's, you know, she kept referencing and coming back to these beliefs that she's had or that she has about who she is or about how the world works, and understand that that might not be the best way. And so there's this work in Christianity, according to this book in Colossians, and then throughout the other writings, that to understand this old self, this old way of about going about things, these beliefs that we have, and that the invitation of Christ is to find this new self, that there's something new and different and beautiful here. And what I find fascinating about Chris's life and fascinating about this quick text in Colossians is that the wording that's used is, he says in verse 10, that you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, the wording here is one that's a permanent present tense, that the invitation is to consistently find ourselves in this place of being renewed over and over and over again into this new self, new self, new self, because there are old ways, broken ways, messy ways that we think about ourselves and the world around us, and to continually, this permanent present tense, to continually come back to, okay, that's brokenness. That's a lie. That's not right. And there's a new way, a better way for me to go about this. I find this important because I think many times, and for many of us, Christianity sometimes is handed down as this kind of one and done moment that you raise a hand or you pray a prayer, and then everything is different. Everything is new. Everything is better, right? (laughs) But then we go through life. We go through relationships and things happen. And as much as there's this conversation of everything's new because you pray to prayer, you're in Christ, as some would say. So that shouldn't be a problem. That shouldn't be an issue anymore. For some of us, we continually find, no, it is a problem and it still is an issue. And I think that when we look at the language and what was really happening with the new church, and when we look at what true healthy spirituality is, which is what Christ is inviting us into, I believe, it's this permanent present tense of understanding ourselves And looking at, okay, yeah, maybe you prayed a prayer, maybe you raised a hand, maybe you are working to change your belief system, great, but that's a continual work. It's not because you did this thing when you were in middle school or a week ago, it's because you continually put yourself in this place that we put off our old self, that's an old way to think about it, that's not healthy, that's not good, that's not right, that's a lie, as Chris said and to work to put on a new self, which is consistently being renewed in knowledge after the image of the divine. There's a more beautiful way for us to go about that. In other words, we are on a journey. That's what this spirituality is about. That we are constantly growing and evolving individuals. That we must, for healthy spirituality, must in this way of Christ, constantly give ourselves space to grow. So we must ask ourselves the question, are we working to understand that old self, these beliefs that we might hold that are not healthy about relationships? Maybe we've grown up like Chris, seeing certain relationships work in a certain light in a certain way, and we carry baggage because of that. And we've never even thought about that kind of baggage that we would carry. And to just label it and say, no, that's the old self, that's a broken way for me to go about this. And healthy spirituality would say, okay, call that what it is and find this new, more beautiful way to interact with this stuff. Are you working to find knowledge, truth, beauty, and goodness to place in your life? That this is the journey we're on. We all have things that we believe that are incorrect about ourselves and the world around us. And our job is not to try and solidify where we are right now and never waver and never change. But the invitation of Christ is to always be renewed in this knowledge after the divine. Chris's story is one of a journey that yes, there's this old self, but it's been this journey continuing to come back to it and wrestle with it and try to weed it out and find this more good, beautiful, true way to go about it. This is our and your invitation in spirituality as well to identify that old self and to work to put on the new self.
consistently being renewed in knowledge after the image of the divine. So for me, the question then is, okay, how do we do this? How are we to go about it? And you probably picked up a lot of stuff in Chris's story that I don't need to go back and necessarily talk about all of those things. But I think for us specifically as the CMYK community, there's a couple things that rise to the surface. First and foremost, it's this concept of working to be open, that we are open. We say that our work as the CMYK community is to be present, to be honest, to be open, and to be loved. This concept of being open, it means that we admit that there are things that we currently don't understand and we currently don't have all the answers or don't know what's right. In other words, to be open is to understand that we could be wrong. And so we're open to things and ideas and ways of thinking that are outside of what we hold on to right now. Again, this is what I see Christ inviting us into with, a, with healthy spirituality. Are there things that you're holding on to that you're willing to admit, that might not be the best way to go about this. That might not be the best way to think about this person or this, these policies or ideas or concepts, beliefs, whatever it is. Are we open to that? To be renewed and put on something new. So first, we're open. Secondly, I think that we work to actually grow in knowledge, as Paul talks about in Colossians, that we're growing in knowledge. So it's as silly as it might sound, I think it's an important question for many of us who are adults and don't, aren't forced to read things. Are you reading? Are you learning? Are you studying something? Are you working to expose yourself to new information and ideas and concepts? Or have you fi- simply found yourself in some kind of echo chamber that is always just echoing back to you what you already believe and think about certain things? Yes, we need people around us that assure us in what's good, right, true, and beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. But are we willing to, con- to again, be open, to be wrong, and to actually investigate and read and study and try to learn and grow? Because that's part of healthy spirituality. But I think that this is more than just reading a book. I love the way um, that ethics kind of talks about this idea of knowledge and how do we grow in our knowledge of ethics. And it talks around this math equation of that knowledge really is experiences times sensitivity, that it's these two things working together that help us grow in our knowledge. So our experiences are what we are aware, are we aware of what we're feeling and sensing and thinking? What are we experiencing in this world? And then to be sensitive to them. In other words, we give our feelings and thoughts a voice. They can speak to us about how things are really going. For some of us, we've grown up in households that someone says, this is reality, this is true. And then we have experiences that speak differently about what is reality, what is true. There are certain, many of us have heard stories or experienced life in such a way that someone tells us, this is the best way to go about it. And we start to go, <laughs> we go through life and we start to experience, but this, is, this isn't the best way to go about it. And we learn not to be sensitive to it. We learn not to be aware of what ourselves are telling us, telling us, or what I would say, the Spirit of God is telling us because we've just learned to shut it down because that's not what was told to me. No, we must learn to be aware of our experiences and be sensitive to those things. And this isn't to say that every feeling or emotion that comes is the voice of God and you have to listen to it, but are we actually wrestling with these things? Are we giving them a voice? Because these two things, experience and sensitivity, they actually grow our knowledge. And it's an important loop that needs each other. I love the way Noah Yuval Harari, in his book, Homo Deus, says this. He says, experiences and sensitivity build up one another in a never-ending cycle. He says, I cannot experience anything if I have no sensitivity. And I cannot develop sensitivity unless I undergo a variety of experiences. So to put off this old self and to put on something new means, what are you experiencing? And are you staying sensitive to those those things? On top of what are you reading and studying and growing in? So first, we got to be open. Second, we got to work to grow in our knowledge. And then last but not least, I think this is where it kind of lands the plane for us as a community that we grow together. We're moving towards this image of the divine together. In other words, this is not the work of an island. That's not what we're invited into. 
that it's just us and our own experiences and sensitivity, us and what we think and believe and process. No, but we work to surround ourselves with people that can speak into our lives, that we can speak into their lives, that we can grow together. And some of us know what it's like to be in relationships and communities where we're not actually growing and moving forward. They're static or the communities that are not open. In other words, we're never wrong. This is building a wall and that's all we're here to do. And for me, I really believe this language of the early church. This is putting off, there's an old self we got to work to continually put off. And as Chris talks about, these beliefs that we have to continue to identify, that's not right, that's not true and good and beautiful. And we surround ourselves with people and find people that are willing to, yes, call us out when we're wrong, but also willing to go down this journey and path with us in figuring out this divine image of the creator that we are invited into. Because the people around you influence you more than most things. So with that, we just ask the question, are you open? Are you working to grow in your knowledge by what you're studying, reading? Are you being aware of your experiences and staying sensitive to those things? And are you working to find community around you that you can grow together and have conversations and wrestle with things? This is us putting off our old self and putting on something good, true, and new. Thanks, Chris, for your story. And thank you for listening in on these podcasts. Again, uh, we've got another story, but I want to mention to you that this upcoming week is going to be Mother's Day. And so we're going to push a pause on the story series. And we've got a really, really special Mother's Day gathering. Hope you can make it uh, to the actual gathering because we're going to do some really special things for moms. And we're going to wrestle together and talk about this idea of God, our mother. In other words, the femininity of God and what that looks like and the invitation uh, for us to interact with the divine on that level. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, so we're going to do that as a gathering. We're actually going to record this podcast live at the gathering and then post it later on uh, during the day. So if you can't make it, we will post it. But hope you're doing well. Love you. We will talk to you soon.